may be seated. Let's turn to the one who is the only one we need. That is the Lord Jesus Christ who speaks to us in Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2 this morning. I'd ask you to take your Bible and follow along as we've now made our way into the section of the book of Revelation that deals with the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And this morning we are looking at the second of those letters, the letter to the church at Smyrna. And this letter is the the shortest of the seven letters. uh, As we talked last week about kind of the the structure of these seven letters, this one sticks out along with the one to Philadelphia in that in this letter there's no rebuke from Jesus Christ to this church. Uh, But what this letter does do is it demonstrates the reality of Christ's intimacy with his church. One of the images that John has given us of Christ in in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation is that Christ stands and then in chapter 2 walks in the midst of his churches. Not just a transcendent out there savior, but one who is intimately a part of us here with us corporately this morning, here in our individual lives, even as the church scatters here from this place this morning. We're going to see things in chapter 2 in this letter to the church at Smyrna where Jesus says, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I know the slander you're going through. He's going to say to them, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison. Jesus has an intimate awareness of this church, of what they're going through and what they will be going through. Smyrna was a suffering church, and that's what this letter is about. Jesus speaks to them in their suffering. And because as we've previously seen, these letters to these seven churches are not just written to them. The number seven being a, 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 number, a symbolic of completion. It speaks to all the church in every age, in every circumstance. So this very clearly could have been written to Covenant Life Church. To the saints this morning in your suffering. Christ knows it. Christ is present with us in it. And my prayer this week has been that this message might, just as it was intended to be to the saints at Smyrna, might be to you and I. A word of encouragement, a word of hope, a word of comfort. Because though we may have walked into this room, put on a brave face, put on our Sunday best, in reality there are numerous people in this room right now who are enduring incredible hardships, affliction, physical pain, suffering, maybe even persecution for the sake of Jesus, such as we saw in Psalm 109 this morning. So let us make room in our hearts this morning to hear the voice of Christ who speaks to us in our suffering. And I'm going to begin reading this morning from chapter 1 in verse 12. We'll read to the end of chapter 1. And then I will leapfrog to chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. We begin in chapter 1 because I want us to be reminded of who it is who's speaking. I want us to feel the gravity of who it is who is speaking to us in our midst to our sufferings. Revelation chapter 1, verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. 
The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Chapter 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. But be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for the revelation of your intimacy with us. The grave danger in the book of Revelation has always been to see it as an outlier, to see it as a distant future thing with very little bearing on our lives today. And Father, we're learning week after week after week. That is so completely wrong. This book was written for your people, your church, today. For every Christian in every circumstance, in every situation. But for us, it is written for today. And so, Father, we pray that each one of us in this room would make room in our hearts for the authoritative voice of your son, Jesus, who's in our midst, who knows us intimately and speaks these words of hope, of comfort, and encouragement that revolves around him. Open our eyes that we may see and that we may believe and we may look unto Jesus off all else and cling to Jesus even in the midst of our suffering. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's talk briefly about context here. It is written to a very real church, real people in a town called Smyrna. So what do we know a little bit? Why, is he, uh, why were these Christians in Smyrna suffering? Well, there's, there's at least two reasons, two broad reasons. We're not going to get into all the nuances, but broadly speaking, there's two reasons this church was suffering. And the first has to do with Smyrna, the city. The city of Smyrna was renowned for their allegiance to the Roman Empire. They were well known, and particularly their affection for the Roman emperor himself. 
Smyrna was a city of approximately, at this time, probably 100 to 200,000 people. Not a large city, but it was a very proud city. It was a beautiful city. It was always in competition with Ephesus, who we looked at last week. It was always in competition with Ephesus for the designation of being the most well-known, the most splendid, the most glorious, the most eloquent city in, the ancient, in, in Asia Minor. And uh, Smyrna was known for its loyalty to Rome. Now, we need to understand about 60 years prior to this, uh, to the writing of, of this letter, so somewhere around AD 26, 25, 26, 27, Smyrna was in competition with many other large cities to erect statues to the great Roman emperors, particularly Tiberius of that day, but, but they were in the running to, to, to be the city that erected these monuments to these emperors. And all these ancient cities were vying. They wanted to be the place to do it. Well, Smyrna won the competition. And Smyrna began to erect these, these, uh, these temples and these statues to, these, to the honor of the Roman emperors. And it's just an example of how Smyrna was, was very tight to, with Rome and with emperor worship. Now, something you have to understand about Rome and, and being under Roman rule. Rome allowed for religious freedom. It's an interesting little nuance. When Rome conquered a nation... They allowed that nation, whatever your church is, whatever your religion is, whatever you do, listen, we don't have enough manpower to occupy and take over everything, all these empires, so we're going to allow you certain degrees of freedom. And you want to continue your religion, go ahead. As long as you pay us, and two, you add to your worship the worship of the emperor. Emperor is king. So long as you worship the emperor as king, hey, you can continue. We're not going to get in your way. That poses a conflict for Christians, right? Because we hold to one true God, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other. And so the Christians at Smyrna, they had to refuse what Rome said. Though they were allowed religious, they could not add worship of the emperor to their worship. And as such, the Roman Empire was enraged, and the Roman Empire began persecution on Christians, and it certainly included the Christians at Smyrna. So that's one reason they're suffering. The Roman Empire is coming down upon them, but the text tells us of a different reason why they're suffering. There existed, verse 9 tells us, an antagonism between some in the Jewish community and the Christian community that was there. So some in the Jewish community, probably jealous of the inroads of Christianity, they were informing the Roman Empire and slandering the church. They were, they were destroying the reputation. about. They were, they were making up lies about the practice of the church. Some of the most well-known stories that the Jews would promote about Christians is that they drowned babies and that they were cannibals. Now, can you think from a Christian perspective, again, we're talking about slander, why would they, how would they even come up with something? They drowned babies and they're cannibals. The Christian practice of baptism and communion. They take a truth and they, they distort it. And it became, they became known as people who drowned babies and they were cannibals. And so there was all kinds of these false accusations being brought down upon the church of Jesus Christ. And so they are suffering under the weight of Roman occupation and now the Jews are an all-out attack on them. And this letter is written by the Lord Jesus Christ to these suffering saints who were just trying to be devoted to the Lord Jesus, keeping their eyes fixed upon Him. 
They're suffering. They're going to be suffering for the foreseeable future. And this is what Christ says to them. What does he say to them? What does a gathering of Christians enduring suffering need most? Christians like us, Covenant Life Church, as we gather together, we gather, we've got a brave face on, but we know there's all kinds of struggles and hardships and afflictions and physical pain that we're going through. What does a body of Christians like us need most? And the answer is the clearest vision of Christ possible. And drawing from the vision of Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, Christ addresses this church in Smyrna, addressing their suffering with this introduction. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. Jesus himself introduces himself to this church, not with some happy-go-lucky Sunday school picture of Jesus, but very strategically pulling straight out of that vision of Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. He says, for your situation and what you're going through with your suffering, of all that vision in Revelation chapter 1, this is what you need most. A vision, an understanding of me and my sovereignty, that I am the first and the last, which means I am sovereign over the first and the last, which means I'm sovereign over that, that, and everything in between. You need a clear vision of my sovereignty over all things, and that I am the one who died and rose again. Church, you're going through suffering. Some of you are going to die from your suffering. I'm addressing you not as someone up in an ivory tower speaking down theology to you in the midst of your grief and hurt. Just look to Jesus. That can come across as very condescending. It can come across as very simplistic. It can come across as very, man, you're not even listening to what my problem is. Actually, the Reverse is true. If, that, if it's not practical to us, then we have woefully uh, misunderstood how the fullness of Christ. But Jesus here by saying, I am the one who died. And he's saying, listen, you're suffering. I've been there. I've been to the pit. I died. And now I live. I'm the one who can give you hope. I'm the one who has the authority to speak to you in your suffering and your physical hardship and your whatever the, you're going through, whatever the suffering. And so here you have this church enduring suffering. The text tells us they're going to go through a whole lot more. And yet Jesus says, let me give you what you need most, church. And it's not what we tend to often give. We, we're well-intended, but Jesus says, I'll give you myself. I am the master of all of history. And I am the great martyr unto death. I think one of the striking things about this letter to the church at Smyrna is that there's not one word of, well, what we would tend to do when we're trying to minister to our brothers and sisters who are suffering. If you're like me, you know, you go someone, you know, who's suffering and you're trying to, you're trying to help, you're trying to comfort. 
you write them a letter or email or you call or text, whatever, whatever you do. Everyone has their own personality and some are more comfortable with different means. But whatever, you, you, you contact that person and you write, I'm so sorry you're going through this. I, I'm here for you. I'm praying for you. And that's wonderful. But there's a, an attitude of condolence there. Like, I wish it didn't have to be this way. There is not a word of condolence from Jesus to this church in its suffering. And the obvious reason of why Jesus doesn't send a word of condolence to them is because what he says right there in verse 8. I'm sovereign over your suffering. It may be Rome who's persecuting. It may be the Jews who are slandering. But they don't have the power to do anything that I don't let them do. He says, I'm sovereign over that. And the suffering that you're going through, listen to this covenant life, church. This is hard. The suffering you're going through, I have a purpose in it. To put it another way, there is a relationship between our suffering and our sanctification. Sometimes we struggle to see that connection, don't we? Sometimes we don't want to see that connection. But 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 is the clearest statement about the relationship between our heartache, our pain, our physical suffering, our deprivation, our persecution, our sanctification. Where Peter writes, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if ne- now <laughs> that sounds so minimalistic, doesn't it? If that now though for a little while, You've been grieved by various trials. For some of us in this room, it ain't been a little while, right? Peter's speaking from a broad perspective, an eternal perspective. For a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, when you get home this afternoon, go to the passage, circle the so that. Highlight the so so that. Underline the so that. You have been grieved by various trials, so that. The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. Please hear me. Jesus is not unloving toward our suffering. He's not trying to whitewash or ignore the reality of your pain of your suffering, of your hardship, of your affliction, of your depression, of your... I'm just throwing... Fill in the blank. He's not trying to undermine the suffering that the church in Smyrna is going through, and he's not trying to do that to us this morning. He's not trying to to convince you, hey, look, listen, I know it's hurting, but it's not that bad. Oh, yes, it is. Everyone in this room would say, yes, it is that bad. These things are hard. That's why Jesus introduces himself as the one who died and came to life. He knows it's hard because whatever we're going through, I mean this graciously, it hasn't killed us yet. We haven't died from it yet. So when Jesus says, I've died, he says, I've been there, I've been in the pit, and I've taken it all the way that you can take it. Listen, if we do not look beyond the pain 
to the Savior beyond it, to the Savior that's sovereign over it, it has a disillusioning effect on us. Uh, Suffering, no matter how massive or how small, always produces one of two results. Either increased dependence on Christ, and that's ideal, or the other is disillusionment. And what do we mean by disillusionment? This effect on the soul where in the midst of our pain and our suffering, we're hurting and we can't see beyond just right here, right now, what's in front of me. And you feel the pain and sorrow and all you can begin to think is, I'm lost. I'm adrift. God has forgotten me. The church has forgotten me. Everybody has forgotten me. My family has forgotten me. Nobody cares. Nobody listens. in those moments when we're adrift and we're believing such lies, we need a spiritual compass to find our way back. That's why so many struggle. God, God, don't you see what's going on here? Don't you see how bad it hurts? Don't you see at my age all that I'm going through, all that my family's going through? Where are you? What are you doing? If, if you walk among your churches, why are you turning a blind eye to me? When will this end? You see, that's how we become disillusioned. And we need a north star. We need a reference point to help us get through such disillusionment and to see things as they really are. And that north star, that point of reference, Jesus says, is me. Fixing your gaze upon me, the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. Fixing your eyes upon me gives you that perspective you so desperately need. And so Jesus speaks to you and I this morning. Covenant Life Church. Brother Joey, Miss Barbara, Brother James, Miss Angie. Samantha, Emily, Jake, everybody. I don't have time to name them all. I know your tribulation. Miss Jean, I know what you're going through. But things are not always what they look like. And he does this in three various ways. Notice the contrast. The first one in the text He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but what? But you're rich. See what he's saying? Things are not what they look like. Secondly, he says, and you're slandered by those who claim to be true Jews, but what? They're really not. They are a synagogue of Satan. Things are not what you think they are. And then thirdly, and you're being persecuted and you may be put to death, but what? But I'll give you a crown of life. You see, three times there, these contrasts, Christ is saying, I'm trying to unveil and help you to see in the midst of your suffering, things are not what they appear for the Christian. So let's look at those three things together. The first thing he says to these Christians in Smyrna is, you're poor. Now, it's true that many in the, 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 who were occupied by Roman occupation, they were slaves. Rome would come in, they would conquer a nation, and they would take 
captive and make them slaves. And most of the time, those slaves were poor. Uh, they, they were uneducated. They may have been illiterate, poor people. That's not what he's talking about here when he says you're poor. The point is, you are poor because of your devotion to Christ. Your devotion to Christ has been costly. It's cost you. And by the world standards, when they look at you, you're poor. This is what the author of the book of Hebrews describes in, in Hebrews chapter 10. We saw this uh, about a year ago. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened. The word enlightened there is converted to Christ. When your mind was opened, the blinders taken away, you were enlightened to see the glory of Christ. You were able to see the glory of God, your need of a Savior. Christ is that Savior. After you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. You had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And that's what's happened here to the church at Smyrna. And Jesus comes in and says, now, you look at yourselves, and it looks like you don't have much by way of wealth. Now, how does that apply today? It may be, I don't know of anyone here today, but it may be sometimes a family will disinherit someone when they follow Jesus Christ. Maybe because they've betrayed the family religion, the, the heritage of the past, they come in, it's not unheard of, for a family to disinherit somebody. Like I said, I'm not aware of anything that, any of that type of thing here, but it could be one. More commonly, maybe you lose a job because you're a Christian. Maybe it's something like this. Your boss says, hey, uh, hey I need you to do this. And you reply, you know, I, I'm just not comfortable doing that. I, I'm a Christian. I, I really don't think I can do th that in that way. And the boss comes back and says, I don't understand. I'm a Christian too. I, I, I don't understand. What, you, what do you mean you're a Christian? You can't do this. Look, look, at, look at Tom over here. Tom's a, he, go, he goes to church every Sunday. He doesn't have any problem doing what I'm asking him to do. Now, what's the problem here? Why won't you get in line? And you reply, I can't. It violates my devotion to Jesus and, 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 and doing things that honor and glorify Him. And so, well, if you're not going to do things our way, then you can't work here. So there's certainly a possibility that you could be poor in that way because you're a Christian. You, you lose your ability to earn an income. You, or maybe, and probably the most common way, we live in America today where America is always marketing to us the next best thing. You've got to have this, you've got to have that. There's a subliminal message which means that whatever you do have is not good enough, and if you want to be happy, if you want to be content, you need to get this thing. And it may not be an object, it may be a lifestyle, it may be a way of life, but as an American, you, you need this, you can do this to be whole. But to do so would be compromise, and so you don't do it. And in that way, you can feel like you're poor compared to those around you. Now, the implication here does not mean that you cannot be rich and be a Christian. Listen to what uh, Tim, uh, Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. As for the rich in the present age, charge them just not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who provides us with everything to enjoy. And then in Hebrews 13, the author says, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave nor forsake you. So the picture here is that it is okay to have things. It's not sinful to be wealthy. To be a faithful Christian doesn't mean you have to be poverty stricken. So what is the test? The test is, 
Are you acquiring wealth in such a way that it drains your love for Jesus? Are you acquiring things because in your mind, Christ is not enough? My happiness is not in Christ, the fullness. And so therefore, to kind of supplement that, I need the next best thing, or I need this job, or I need this career. That's the test. If Christ is not enough, and therefore I need something else, then we know that our heart has betrayed Christ. These people, by their own admission, they feel poor. But Jesus comes back and says, but you're rich. Well, how are they rich? Well, they're spiritually rich. Now, I remember when I was a kid, or in, probably a teenager, just old enough to be cynical. Okay, so how are you rich? You're spiritually rich. Oh, so that means I'm not really rich. No, not at all. Just because you can't hold it in your hand doesn't mean that you're not. Doesn't mean it's not real. Think of it this way. A man who can go to sleep at night with his conscience clear, lay his head down on his pillow, despite the fact that throughout the day he has sinned against God. Someone who can bring that and, 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 and have uninterrupted sleep through the night, peaceful sleep because he has brought his sin to the cross of Jesus Christ. He has confessed it. He's repented of it. I mean, that's a priceless gift. Every one of us know what it is to toss and turn through the night under the weight and conviction of sin. What a beautiful, rich gift it is to know that I can get a good night's sleep because even after I sin, my hope is in Jesus Christ. And I'm forgiven through my repentance. A woman who never needs to wake up and say to herself, man, I really got to work harder today to pay off God's forgiveness, to earn God's favor, to make sure he knows I'm serious for what I've done. That's a rich person to know that today, though I want to live to the glory of God, I am not a debtor to God, that I'm not trying to earn his favor. That's a precious, priceless gift. A rich person doesn't have to be afraid of what tomorrow will bring. That's rich, to know that God is sovereign. I don't know how, you, how we live in a world without knowing God is sovereign and in complete control of all things. That's a priceless gift. And we don't think in these ways, but this is what Christ means when he says, you look at yourself and you think, and the world thinks you're poor, but oh, you are rich, spiritually rich. Has that gripped our heart? Have we turned off all other things because we've seen the riches in Christ and that's what we want more than anything else? You remember the story of, of uh, Moses' mother, right? In order to keep Moses from being killed, what does she do? She puts him in a basket, puts him in the Nile River. Lo and behold, who comes out of the, finds him as Pharaoh's daughter. She knows he's a Hebrew boy, knows that he should be killed, but what does she do? She loves him. She says, you know, I don't, I don't want anything to happen to this boy. So she takes him as her own child, takes him back to the palace, back to Pharaoh's house. And lo and behold, actually has Moses' mother come in and take care of the child, who is really her own child. She raises him as an adult there in Pharaoh's house. And when he grows up, he sees the Jews out there and the Egyptians. And Moses has to make the choice, which am I going to be? And the Bible says that he amazingly preferred the hardships that God's people endured rather than all the riches that Egypt offered. 
Is that us? Is that you? Would the world look at you and say, poor Christian, you seem like you do without an awful lot of things, like you're missing out on a lot of joys, a lot of happiness. Christ says, things are not what they appear. You are rich beyond belief. In the midst of your suffering, that feeling of poverty, keep your eyes on me and know the riches. Secondly, about this church, we're told that their critics are slandering them. They're blaspheming them. Now, now who are they? It's interesting language that Jesus uses here. Again, keep in mind, this is Jesus speaking to his church. He says that they are Jews, but they're not Jews. Now, now, what does he mean? On the one hand, of course they are Jews. They are descendants of Abraham and, and, and Isaac and, and Jacob. Uh, but in another sense, they are not Jews. Outwardly, they are Jews of Jewish descent. Inwardly, they are not. They are not true Jews. They are, in fact, in Jesus' own words, a synagogue of Satan. Now, this raises a question, well, how in the world do you delineate what is a true Jew and what is not a true Jew? Well, the Bible tells us that a true Jew, in the new covenant sense of the word, a true Jew, which is what the old Jews were pointing us toward, a pure people, the church of Jesus Christ, a true Jew is one who, regardless of nationality, has embraced the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord, Savior, and treasure. And there are texts that point us to this. Sometimes it's hard to make this connection, but the texts that are there are clear. Things like in Romans 2.28, Paul writes, For no one is a Jew, a true Jew, who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit not by physical hands. What's he saying there? It doesn't matter if you've been outwardly circumcised and if you were born into a Jewish family. That is not a true Jew. A true Jew is one who is the fulfillment of what that pointed to. They've been circumcised, not outwardly, inwardly. What's that speaking to? Jeremiah 31, the new covenant, I will take out, I will cut off that heart of stone and leave softened flesh, a heart of flesh, a softened heart that loves Jesus. A true Jew is one who's been born again from above. Philippians 3.3, Paul writes again, We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Our hope is not in circumcision or religion or morality. And perhaps the most explicit explanation is in Galatians 3.28 and 29, where again Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither male nor female, neither slave nor free, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now listen to this part. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So to be an heir of Abraham, to be in line of that promise of the seed of the woman, it doesn't matter what country you're from, what nationality you are, what blood flows in your veins, what color of your skin, your DNA is irrelevant. What matters is your love for Jesus. Is that you're in Christ by faith through the spiritual circumcision of the new birth. 
And that's why Jesus says, the Jews are slandering you, but they're not true Jews. They are what? A synagogue of Satan. What does he mean? Well, going back to the book of Genesis, you have everything in Genesis 1 through 10 getting us to Abraham. You have the promise of Genesis 3 that there's going to be a seed of the woman, seed of the serpent. And then everything else throughout New Test- Old Testament, New Testament history, everyone who lives is going to belong to one or two families, seed of the woman, seed of the serpent. Seed of the serpent is the synagogue of Satan. And he's saying here that there are Jews who are, they're Jews by nationality. They're seed of the serpent. They opposed Christ. They opposed Christianity. Oh, they're being faithful in their religion. They, they have the same book. They read the same Old Testament. right? They go to church. They're singing the same songs. They sing the book of Psalms, just like we do on a Sunday morning, praying through the book of Psalms. Uh, they're praying, at least they think, to the same God that the Christians are praying to, Jehovah. But the line of demarcation is this. They reject Jesus Christ in his lordship, in all that he is. And because of that, they have no hope. They're not just good Jews who are confused. They are a synagogue of Satan. They are the devil's church, if we kind of contemporary way of phrasing it. And Jesus has kind of talked about this in his life and ministry. When he's, uh, John's gospel, he's arguing with the Pharisees, or they're arguing with him. And he says to them in the middle of the conversation, you Jews, this is around chapter 8, you Jews are not the children of God. You're the children of devil, of the devil. He says that straight to them. How can he say that in light of the Old Testament? They're the Jews. They're the people of God. They're descendants of Abraham. He says, he follows that up by saying, because you look just like your dad. A child always looks like their dad. And you're doing the very things that Satan does. Satan tempts people not to follow Christ. He lies to them about God, lies to them about themselves. He opposes Christ at every turn. Satan offers a cut-rate religion which says you can uh, nod your head to Jesus, but then live however you want to live. And Jesus says to the Jews, that's how how y'all are doing. Yeah, you're religious, you're moral, you're doing all these things. But when it comes to Jesus Christ, you live just like your father. And Jesus here is making clear to the church at Smyrna, that these who are accusing them, it's not what they appear. These are not brothers and sisters in Christ who are accusing them and slandering them. That's painful enough, isn't it? <laughs> he says, these are a synagogue of Satan. Now, that doesn't necessarily lessen the pain of being slandered, right? But it does give them perspective to say, as I look to Christ, and his lordship over my suffering, his sovereignty over my suffering. He knows I'm being slandered. He knows, he walks in the, he, how, how deeply it cuts and it hurts me and how I toss and turn at night. But he reveals to me, this is not his indictment of me. This is the seat of the serpent. As I wander through the wilderness to the promised land, to eternity with God forever. This is just part of the battle. What about in our lives? The ungodly try to attack someone who's godly and faithful. 
We live in a world today that Christians are accused of being of intolerant, narrow-minded bigots. Uh, We're anti-women, anti-gay, anti-intellectualism because we don't hold to a biological understanding of evolution. And again, I, I throw those out because those are pretty broad, and I think most of us are big boys and big girls, and those don't exactly sting. It does get much more personal than that, doesn't it? Well, we should understand that's part of our suffering. And even that, the Lord is sovereign over and has a purpose in it. Thirdly, in these contrasts, things are not always what they appear. He says in verse 10, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for 10 days, that you will, have tribula- you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life, the crown of victory, the crown of gold, the crown of glory is the idea here. At the end of time, Jesus is saying to these suffering saints at Smyrna and to you and I this morning, at the end of time, you little church of, and these are Jesus' words, poor people, and slandered people who the world looks at and thinks you're kooky, and even some religious and moral people around you, maybe in your own family, look at you and think you're on the extreme side of things. Know that there's more to come. There's more suffering to come, but don't worry, is what Jesus says. Fear not. That sounds so illogical. Jesus is saying to them and to us, brace for even severer things to come. Physical pain, if it hasn't killed you yet, and man, I hate saying this because I know some of you are in physical pain this morning. It's going to get worse. Modern medicine helps with that. Suffering, persecution for the sake of Christ, hardships, affliction, difficulties in your family. It's a broad umbrella. Brace for severer things to come. But do not fear, he says, because your destiny is in the hands of the one who is the first and the last, the sovereign over everything to come. He introduced himself as the one who died. Brace for severe things to come, but that's coming from the one who says, now I've already been where you're going to go. I've experienced death. And I've overcome it through the resurrection. He says to them, to the saints at Smyrna, he says, even if they imprison you, it's going to be limited. What does he say? Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Please understand, at least by now, numbers in Revelation are not literal in most cases. I just leave myself that because as we continue on. But for the most part, it is not, he's not saying, I'm foreshadowing, 10 days and then it's over. It's a symbolic number that means there will be an end to it. There will be a day 11 where it isn't anymore. It will be limited. Christ limits what the Jews will do to you. Christ limits what the synagogue of Satan will do to you. Christ limits what the enemies and the adversaries will do to us. 
And it just speaks to that even evil is in the hands of Almighty God. We'll, we'll get to it in Revelation chapter 17, where even the nations and the kings of the earth who think in their mind we are rebelling against Jesus, Revelation 17, 17, go look at it. He says, hey, you're doing exactly <laughs> what I intend to do to fulfill my plans and purposes. Your pawn's in my hand. Some of these will be put to death. They're going to be imprisoned. Others will be put to death. But the promise here is, and then you will be everlastingly rewarded. I will give you the crown of life. That's our sovereign king saying, I know your trials. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I know your persecution. I know there's more to come. Brace for it. There's more pain. There's more suffering. Some of you are going to go to jail. Some of you are going to be persecuted deeply. Some of you are going to be martyred to death is what he's saying to them and even saying to us. Brace for severer things. But here's the promise. You will be everlastingly rewarded, those who are faithful to me through it all. And then Revelation chapter 2, verse 11 he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here's the part I want to see. The one who conquers, the one who is faithful to the end, will not be hurt by the second death. What does he mean there, the second death? Well, the first death is the death that we all face, the death that Jesus faced. It's, it's the death we all experience when our bodies die, every one of us. In some way, everybody in the church at Smyrna, everyone at Covenant Life Church, barring the return of the Lord, will face this bodily death. You will not be hurt by the second death. And the second death is speaking to us, John's way of describing eternal judgment, eternal hell. The second death, he says, won't hurt you. When the soul wakes up face to face with Almighty God and there's a judgment there, you won't suffer any harm because of Jesus Christ, because of who he is and what he's done. Now, that's a precious, precious promise. You see, Satan's purpose, the synagogue of Satan's purpose was to cause so much pain, to apply as much pressure as possible, to hurt them such that we would question Christ, turn from Christ, that we would become disillusioned in our suffering and not see beyond this right here wonder, God, where are you? What's going on? Have you forgotten me? Don't you care? You walk among the churches. It seems to be going fine with those, those people, but not over here. That's exactly what Satan wants. For us to even unintentionally recant of the beauty, the fullness, the majesty of Christ Jesus, that our hope is in him. That's Satan's purpose. But God in Christ here says, I'm sovereign even over Satan's purposes and what I'm doing and what I'm allowing, listen to this, is to test you and strengthen you. Even in the midst of some of you sitting here this morning, the physical pain, the emotional pain, the hardship, the different battles you're going through, the depression, God says, I'm testing you. Strengthening your faith. Securing your gaze upon Jesus Christ. Hey, 
he is enough. And Jesus here is saying, if you're hurting this morning, and again, when I say hurting, I'm throwing out a broad blanket. That may come in many different forms. What Jesus is saying, I want you to think about the crown of life. I'm not talking about a crown I'm going to put on your head when you wake up in glory. I'm talking about the crown of life is Jesus forever. Jesus forever. The great treasure of our souls. He says, I want you to take that vision and I want you to bring it into the present, into your suffering right now, and I want you to impose it on your circumstances and be driven by that vision of you will not die the second death. You will have eternity with Jesus. And I want you to impose that and live today in the midst of the heartache and the struggle now. Be faithful now, looking unto Jesus now, clinging to Jesus now, even on the worst day, even when Satan's tempting, even when you feel adrift and alienated and alone and no one's talking to you, no one's, look to Jesus now. Cling to him. An interesting fact, when the book of Revelation arrived in Smyrna, one believer who was almost certainly present in the, book, in, in the church at Smyrna and potentially may have been the pastor at the church of Smyrna at this time. It's a matter of dates. It was a man named Polycarp. Some of you know the story of Polycarp. He was an active member at the church of Smyrna and even went on to become the pastor. So it very well may have been that Polycarp was the one who read the book of Revelation when it arrived for the church. Church tradition tells us that Polycarp was a disciple of John himself, the author of this book. John was an old man discipling younger Christians. Polycarp was one of those. And we know that Polycarp survived this persecution that he said is coming for 10 days, this short-lived thing. We know he survived that because he went on to pastor well into the next century. But years later, the day came when Polycarp was put on notice and called to renounce his faith in Jesus Christ or face the death penalty. And his immortal answers recorded in church history. Eighty-six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And with that, Polycarp clinging to Jesus, clinging to the crown of life, when his life hung in the balance, was executed, burned alive at the stake, faithful to the very end. When the church of Smyrna began to send letters to the surrounding churches that the beloved church father Polycarp had been executed, this is what they wrote. He was crowned with the crown of immortality. And where did they get that? From Revelation chapter 2. So as we close this morning, Jesus writes in verse 11, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is not just for the suffering servants in Smyrna. It's for the suffering servants here at Covenant Life Church. Last Lord's Day, when I broadly introduced these seven letters, I made this statement that the message of these seven letters is not one of morality. It's not one of religion. It is not one of what do we as a church need to do to be a better church? Rather, 
Chapter 1 sets the context. John has been, everything he's been doing has been primarily to help us see the beauty, the majesty, the sufficiency of King Jesus in all circumstances so that we would be drawn to him magnetically in all circumstances. And as we come to the letters here, we're not looking at seven different letters to seven different churches, all providing instruction on how to be a good churches. A lot of books are published today under that guise. I'm not saying there's not things we can learn. I'm saying that's not the point. If we're only interested in being a good church, we're just using God to accomplish our own ends. The letter is a call, not for us to, all right, those of you who are suffering, pull up your bootstraps. Let's let's toughen up a little bit, grit your teeth, cling to this crown of life, and we move on. No. The message of this book is, I know your tribulation. I know your hurt. I know your pain, your poverty. Look to the first and the last. The one who's sovereign over everything from the beginning and the end and everything in between. I know your tribulation. I know it could lead to your death. Look to the one who died. You know, you really can't help other people unless you've been there. I mean, you can. I cringe when people who've never been married want to give marriage counseling, right? Or someone who just got engaged, they want to tell married people who've been married for 30, 40 years, you know, this is, I get it, you can communicate broad principles, but unless you've been there, you really can't speak to it. You can't lift someone out of their despondency and their depression and and the hardship and the temptation unless you've been in the pit and survived and made it through. And we're told with regard to Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2. He was made just like us, weak and tempted in order that he might help you and I. It's in our suffering, what we see here. Christ draws near to us. He walks with us in the furnace to bear us through it. Now, you may not see that. You may not have walked in here this morning feeling that, but that's what Revelation is, apocalypse, unveiling, showing what we may not feel, what we may be so disillusioned to not see. He is with you in your suffering. And with the call to persevere with Christ, he draws near to you in that comes the accompanying promise. You get the crown of life. You get Jesus himself for all eternity. Look to Jesus, the eternal one, who's the first and last sovereign over everything in between. The one who walks with you in your suffering, you may feel defeated. He's victorious. He's the one who died and rose again. Look unto Jesus. Look unto Jesus. He's the omniscient one. You may feel like nobody knows. Nobody cares. I've tried to tell people, but it falls on deaf ears. No one ever responds. I get it. But Christ here says, I walk with you, and I know. Look to Jesus. He's omniscient. Look to Him. He's sovereign. What did He tell this church? It's... Brace yourself, it's going to get worse. Some of you will be in prison for 10 days, which just simply means it's going to get worse. 
but I'm in control of it. I hold the keys of death and Hades and everything. Look to Jesus. He's gracious. He has provided everything you need. He has not promised you this morning or me that he's going to, at some point, end your suffering on this earth. There, I, there is no promise of that. Some of you who are here this morning, you're clinging, oh, I'm hoping it's coming to an end. I, I hope it is too. That's our prayer. But the sovereign king who has a purpose for it, it makes no promises. What he does promise is this. If I continue this in, you into this for my purposes, to strengthen you, to test you, to cling to Jesus, my promise to you is this. If you're faithful to the end, you get Jesus for all eternity. So bring that, impose that now, and cling to that. And that is enough. There's a picture in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, if you've ever read that book, a character named Hopeful. And Christian is on his way to the celestial city, to paradise, to heaven. And he comes to this river. Christian can't cross it. It's a rapid. And Hopeful takes him in his arm. And they're walking through the river, and Christian is crying, I can't feel the bottom. I can't feel the bottom. And Hopeful, who is an illusion of Christ, says, he raises his hand, he's got, he says, but I can. And it's firm. And I'll get you there. And that's the picture of us this morning. Christ here says, I'm the one who from first and last who died and rose again, and you may feel like, I, I, I can't make it. Look to Jesus. He says, I can feel the bottom. It's safe. And I'll get you there.